Romans 8. We'll be there in a moment. I've got a little bit of a lengthy introduction today. And as you notice, if you have a handout, there is no outline today. There's no way to really outline this. Last week we looked at 24 words in verse number 8. Today we'll look at about 5 words in verse number 29. Uh, Romans 8, 28 last week, verse 29. We're not going to cover all of uh, verses 28, 29, and 30. So just a phrase today and that'll keep us plenty busy just like last week's passage did. I want to emphasize a few things. I said the introduction is a little lengthy. It's very important this morning. Uh, I think it's always important, but maybe uniquely important this morning. First of all, what we're going to be preaching on is just part of our regular study of Romans. So I hope those of you that are here every week, you know this. If this is your first Sunday or second Sunday, you probably think, okay, this is one of those guys that hammers away on this, this all the time. We're just doing a study of the book of Romans, is working our way through. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, back in January, and today we're in chapter 8, verses 28, 29, and 30. Uh, the reason I say this, I like expositional preaching. That's what we've been doing on Sunday mornings. Wednesday night, we've been doing a little bit of topical over in the other building, and if you haven't been to that, you might want to come. Uh, we've been hitting a lot on prayer lately, but that's a little different style of teaching and preaching over there than what we're doing here. Of those two, I favor expositional preaching. Here's why. You can't have hobby horses when you're just working through God's word a book at a time. But also, you cannot ignore and dodge and just act like certain things don't exist. And so, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm not apologizing for anything I'm going to preach today, but I'm setting you up for what I'm going to be preaching on, okay? We're going to have some difficult things to swallow for some, and and we'll go forward with that. Also, I want to make clear, we're not preaching on this to entertain inquiring minds, okay? Because I know there are some minds that like to philosophize about theology. And let's sit around and chew the fat, and what do you think, and what are they, and we like to dig into the supposed deep things of God. That is not why we're doing this this morning. You say, well, what approach are we going to have, Jeff? This is going to come across a little bit more like a topical message, but it's not. It's part of our regular expositional. It's just the subject is so big that we have to give it a whole day so here's our approach it's going to be the same as it is every single week I think this is the 65th week I've been here as the pastor and I hope those of you that have been here the whole time could honestly say this is a brag this is what I aim at he basically reads the scripture says sees what it says and we're supposed to adjust our thinking to what the scripture says and I hope you have found me to be that kind of a preacher uh, thank you for the gift card for Pastor Appreciation. I love you guys. We love you guys. In fact, I love you so much, I'm going to take a risk today to tell some things that some may get upset with me. I hope you still appreciate me at the end of the message. <laughs> Doesn't mean you will agree with me. Some will be right down the line, absolutely 100%. Man, that was great. Others will be, yeah, I'll give you about 80%. And some of you will be like, you're going to go home upset. To that end, I have some introductory thoughts, most of which are questions. I wish I had time to pause 30 seconds between them, but I don't. Here's the first question. How big is your God? And by your God, I don't mean like your God versus there's several other gods. How big is yours amongst the others? There's only one God. How big is your God? You say, Jeff, man, my God's as big as the universe. You better go bigger than that. How powerful is your God? You say, my God is so powerful, he can do anything I can think of. You better go bigger than that. He is far bigger than that. He's far more powerful than that. You're not even scratching the surface. Double it, hurry, whatever you have in your mind. Triple it. You're just starting. 
He is way bigger. He's way stronger. He's far more sovereign than we know. He's in control of everything. That's what I want you to get today. Not to offend, I'm shooting straight. God is not American. He is not American, guys. God is not a Republican. I mean it. And I just lost a few. <laughs> God is not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. If you're saying, hey, that's right, he's not a Republican. He's different. No, he's not a Democrat either. God is not politically correct. Boy, do we live in a time where everybody is being second-guessed and retracting all the time, aren't they? Because who did you offend? It's about, just like, stop saying stuff, people. It's like, really? Stay out of trouble. And we don't even hear news anymore. It's what somebody said about something. And who's upset and who you got to make appease and everybody's retracting. Let me tell you something, guys. God is not politically correct. He is not worried about offending you. And God never retracts. He lays it out there and says, you need to adjust your thinking to what I say. I don't have to adjust to what you say. That's the kind of God we're talking about today. Here it comes. All that to say this, and you've got to believe this simple sentence. God does not think like you do. Better put, you do not think like God does. You do not operate like God does. You say, Brother Jeff, I've been in the Bible a long, long time, and I finally reached a point where I match. Really? I'll guarantee you there's things that God... Hey, I'll just tell you straight up, I'm preaching some things today I don't like. You're like, what in the world? Preacher said, what? There's some things I'm going to tell you. I'm going to say it how the Bible says it. If I were God, I would not have done it that way. But God is not like you. He is not like me. My job is not to get up here and fabricate an American 21st century version of a God that Jeff likes or that fits what you would want him to be. This is not build a God. Okay? This is not the mall. You can go build a bear, but we're not going to build a God. We're going to say, God, here's what you say. Next thought. If you are tempted, and there will be a few If you're tempted to be angry at God, if you're tempted to be angry at me, all I ask is, please ask yourself, am I being led to this anger by, listen, by an informed view of Scripture, or is it just my emotion? Got to ask yourself. And in a few minutes, you're going to feel it rising, a few. And when it does, ask yourself, am I getting mad at Jeff, which is the least of the things? Am I getting upset with God by an overall informed view of Scripture? Or is this just me? One other disclaimer before I kind of go into another direction. I know about Second. Peter 3.9, we're not going to delve into it today. And I know about 1 Timothy 2.4, we're not delving into that today. We're not dodging it. Uh, let me just say, we're going to hit something today. We are not hitting the strongest passages yet. Chapter 9 will be the most forceful passage on what we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to touch this. And by now, some of you are saying, just get to it. What are you talking about? Hang on. I told the crowd Wednesday night, and I'll say it again today. Don't take my word for it. You have more verses in your handout, and I had them printed in your handout to take home, and I would ask you, I think you got like a dozen different passages, maybe 13, so when you feel yourself getting upset, and you're just mad at Jeff, and I'm never going back there, please, 
communicate with me and communicate with me after you have read those 13 in their context. Please go look at them in their context. And don't take my word for it. Oh, by the way, don't take your word for it either. Don't take your word for it. Let me give you a little sentence that a lot of times people do when they touch this topic. We'll read a passage of scripture. Here's what often happens either in the brain or coming out of the lips. You ready? Here's what happens. You're going to be there in a minute, some. Here it comes. Well, if that's true, then that would mean this. You see it? Watch. We're reading. We're going along. The Bible says that now. And we get a puzzled face. If that's true, as we point at the passage, well, then that would mean this and this and this. Did you catch the two things that are shaky there? Number one is that first word. The Bible will say something. I hope I rightly divide it. But you need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. And when you see something and it says it, here's what we can't do. If that's true, here's what we have to do. Since that's true, well, then that means this. Here's the other thing we got to watch about doing. And I'm not against systematic theology. It's a pretty good thing. But we got to be careful with it. You say, what in the world is that? Watch this. Here's what we do with our human American mind because we're good. We have reason. God's made us as reasonable beings. We use logic. Watch. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, blank, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, blank, nine, ten. I got it. I know what that blank is eight. That works in math. Here's what I'm going to ask you to be careful about because this is where some of our emotion comes from. God says this. God says A, B, C, E, and we go D. I know, what, I know the one there, and I'm going to ask you, be careful about supplying blanks and filling blanks where God doesn't fill the blank. Remember I said that. Be careful about filling blanks Because what I just kind of described is systematic theology. God says this and this and this. And we put it together and honestly we do the best we can. But there's some things on this subject. We're going to say God says that and that and that and that. Well over here we got Timothy and over here we got 2 Peter. But we got all these passages. And we're going to put it all together and we're going to think. Well I think I'm here to tell you none of us are going to have this thing figured out. If you would. We're going to be in chapter 8 in a moment, but would you look at a couple of verses and actually write this phrase down. God's ways are a mystery to us as mere humans. God's ways are a mystery to us. Proverbs 25, verse number 2. Look at just the first phrase. second part of the verse says, the glory of kings is to search things out. But look at the first part. It is the glory of God to conceal things. Chew on that. It is God's glory to conceal. In other words... All that we know is a little drop in the bucket of an ocean, a little thimble full. And then there's all that God knows. And God says, I'm going to tell you all these things. You say, well, we got the Bible, Jeff, absolutely. It's the word of God, Jeff, absolutely. But it doesn't tell the whole story. It's the glory of God to conceal some things. He doesn't tell us everything. And the other is right there in Romans. If you're in chapter 8, you could just flip right over. It'll be on the screen also. But look at chapter 11, verse 33. This is kind of when Paul summarizes this whole section. Verse 33, he says, oh... The depth. This is the difference. I told you a while ago, God doesn't think like we do. He doesn't operate like us. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depth of it. Notice this next two words. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This is what the Bible says. Verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? That's a, that's a rhetorical question. You know what Paul's saying? No one knows the mind of the Lord unless it's what he tells us here. 
Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Hey, God, we need to talk about... Apparently you forgot and you don't know this and I'm going to inform you. Never has that happened. So back to chapter 8. My last little bit before we jump into our subject this morning is to let you know I have been where... Believe me, I've been where a lot of folks are. This is the greatest example of change in theology in my life. If you've been saved 10, 15 years and you say, I've never had to change my theology on anything, I would challenge you and say, you probably don't read your Bible. Because you had it all figured out 15 years ago and nothing's changed. This is the biggest example of change in my life. And I will tell you, when it first began, I resisted. I didn't like it. So if that's you today, been there. (laughs) I've been there. I don't like it. And during and before the change, I'll go ahead and tell you, I thought very logically. I thought humanly. I would hear some things. didn't know a lot about it. Like, I don't like that. I thought very logically, very human. I hadn't actually read like I should. I was reading, but I wasn't reading like I should. Could I say it this way? I was reading with blinders on, and somehow I missed these things. The main shift for me culminated in 1999. I remember it well. 1999, I had a brand new study Bible. I made up my mind. This year, I'm gonna, every year I don't read through the Bible, but that year I remember thinking, I'm going to read, it'll be, it was one of those years, I'm going to read through the whole Bible. And I particularly had an assignment I gave myself because I was, I was in the process with this thing. And I had my blue pen, I had my green pen, I had my red pen. Here's what I did. Anytime I came upon a passage of Scripture, and this wasn't all of them, but by the way, I wasn't going looking. I'm just saying as I'm reading, oh, blue right there, wow, that green there. Well, this stands out and that stands out, and I'm tying things together and trying to learn. I'm teaching some Bible classes, and this, this is my private devotions. Take me about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes a day, and I'm trying to go through them. I'm read through the whole Bible. But when I came across something that had to do with God's sovereignty, predestination, election, foreknowledge, I would do that in red and I'm going to tell you guys it blew me away how much red I ended up having in that study Bible I was shocked how many chapters this came up in just the simplest of ways before Genesis 12 but a lot in Genesis 12 where there's this man Abraham minding his own business living a sinful lifestyle and Ur the Chaldees and out of nowhere here comes God and says oh by the way I've got more place my hand on you and I'm going to draw you to myself and I'm going to make you the first Jew yeah, what did Abraham do? Yeah, he just lived a real sinful life. The other thing that shocked me was how the Jews never choked on this. I was choking on it. I didn't like it. They just lived with it. So with that in mind, let's read Romans 8. Look at verse 28, because this is where we left off last week. Here's what God's Word says to us. And we know. So right before that, he says all these things we don't know. We don't even know how to pray According to God's will, thankfully he prays according to God's will for us. The Spirit does. Verse 28, very famous verse. It's really what we're going to look at today is playing off of verse 28. The rest of the chapter is explaining this bold promise of verse 28. Paul says, and we, he's talking about Christians, believers, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called According to his purpose. I cannot re-preach last week's message, but here's what we found out. We know that for those who love God, you say, Jeff, I love God. 
Here's what we cannot do. We touched at the end. We cannot say, I love God, but I hate Christians. Can't do that. You cannot say, I love God, but you've rejected Jesus, his son. So if you've never received Jesus as your savior, I'm rejecting him, but I love you, God. You cannot do that. So if you've rejected Jesus, the son of God, you do not love God, and this does not apply to you. The other thing, we said that Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loves me. Notice, he's not saying keeping the commandments is the love. He's not saying commandment keeping is the relationship. What he's saying is, if you love me, if you have a real relationship with me, you will keep my commandments. So if you're sitting here today and say, boy, I'm so glad for Romans 8, 28, because I fit in the I love God category, but you have the commands of God and you make a habit of, I know what the Bible says, but I say fully on what God says, I'm living my life, be careful, this passage may not apply to you. Real quiet in here. Next. Who does it apply to? That's a big promise. All things work together for good. All things. Last week we said even suffering, even temptation to sin. In fact, we even said that even when we sin, God has He's so powerful, He can turn it to good in the end. Even says, and uh, bless his heart, one man heard that message and said, I especially at our life group, I won't pick on him because he's here. He was totally joking. He says, yeah, my favorite part of the message was when Jeff said it's okay to sin. <laughs> he's joking but God can use even our sin isn't that amazing it doesn't say anything good about us it says so much about God God used even the death the murder of his own son to turn it for our good so the verse ends for those who are called according to his purpose please don't miss the forest for the trees we're going to focus on something in a moment don't miss the forest for the trees you say what in the world does that mean This passage, verse 28, Christian, hear me, if you fit the category of you really do love God and you are called according to his purpose, everything, even the difficult things, even the confusing things, it's going to all work out for your good. Here's what that means. This is talking about eternal security for the Christian. So from here on the rest of the time, you say, how's it talking about? What it's saying is you didn't do anything to save yourself. You can't do anything to lose it. It's all God's power. It's all God's grace. And so it ends well for us. Maybe painful along the way, but it ends well. Why? Verse 29, here we go. The word for. Because. It's going to end well because God cannot be stopped. Because God cannot fail. God completes what he begins. Verse 29. And we saw these like seven, eight things that says he did this. For those whom he foreknew. So it's these are called according to the purpose. That's who the promise that it's all going to work out for good. Got to put it all together. But in the end it all works out for their good. And we're going to look back and say this is awesome. For those who are called according to his purpose. Notice that's first, purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he, which means the son, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's the purpose. So there's the purpose, there's this foreknowledge, there's this predestined. And in verse 30... And those whom he predestined, he also called. Who were the called ones, the predestined? And those whom he called, 
He also justified. Justified means God declares that person righteous, not because they're righteous, but because he gives them Christ's righteousness because they put their faith and trust in Jesus. And, and God says, who are the called ones? They're the ones that were predestined. Who are the predestined ones? They're the ones he foreknew. Why is that? Because they fit into the purpose. And here we come out and find, who are the justified ones? They're the ones that he called. And then the Bible finishes, verse, 20, verse 30, saying, those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we have these six words, and they all have this past tense. You've heard us say this many times. It's not original. They're all past tense because they're completed in eternity past. What we just read, if you want to write this down in your note, these verses are God's perspective of our salvation. For some reason in America, we go left to right, and that's how we read, so if we, that's how we do our history line, right? So we go to our left is eternity past, out to the right is eternity future, so we do this timeline. Watch this. Here's what I'm going to propose to you. These three verses are, are putting forth to us. In fact, I'm going to say out of these six words, the last five describe the first one. The last five describe the first one. Here it comes. There's God's purpose. The purpose is that his son is going to be the firstborn among many brethren who are conformed to his image. That's God's purpose. Now, to make that happen, five things are going to be carried out. What are those? He foreknows ones that are going to be in the purpose, and then those whom he foreknew, he predestined, they will fit, they will be fitting the purpose and then those whom he he predestined he called those and then those that he calls he justifies and those he justifies they are glorified it's so sure to happen even glorified is past tense so eternity past God's here looking forward actually that's too simple but from our perspective God's looking forward now here I am living life I haven't got to glorified yet but here I am living life but it's so sure because God's saying I've already willed it to happen it's going to happen it's going to happen. You see the verses again. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image. And in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. We have all these terms. I find that these terms are laced with a lot of emotion. They're just emotionally charged words. I'm going to make a proposal to you. Out of those six words, calling, foreknown, predestined, uh, the, the, uh, wait, the purpose was the first one, the fourth one, calling, justified, glorified, there's one word in particular that really stirs up a lot of emotion. It's that word predestined or predestination. I find that people get very emotionally charged with that. I'm going to offer to you this morning that my understanding of these terms, if we are to get them the way I feel the Bible explains, I'll try to show this, that really the word predestined should not be the emotionally charged word. It really would be this word foreknown, foreknowledge, and its sister word, election, the elect. That's where really, I think, is the rub to our human logic and our human em- emotion. Not so much the word predestination. That's become kind of a buzzword for whatever ever reason. Can I say this? All three words I just gave you are Bible words. Election, foreknowledge, and Paul's going to use the word election in chapter 9, not in chapter 8. So election, foreknowledge, predestination, all three are Bible words. I've actually heard this before. Maybe you have too. Uh, You don't believe in predestination, do you? How do you answer that? You're not one of those preachers believes in predestination, are you? 
Can I tell you guys what I hear in my head when you ask that? There's a sign that goes up over your head, one of those little cartoon things. Inside it says, I don't read my Bible. <laughs> You're not one of those preachers who believes in predestination. Um, yes. It's a Bible word. If you just act like it doesn't exist, you're taking out like three or four passages in the Scripture. I feel like saying, don't you? Catch what I'm saying here. I would ask that person, even if your understanding of predestination is different than mine, you don't just ignore the Word, do you? Because this is what we can't do. We can't act like we really don't want to know what God says to us through His Word while ignoring certain words. We can't do that. And I might even ask them this. Uh, Those three words, how do you define them? How do you define them? So I'd ask you right now. You've heard the words predestined, foreknown, the elect, election. How do you define those words? I find that I encounter four types of people. I believe probably all four types are in this room right now. And by the way, all four types can definitely be Christians. Here's one type of person. Put yourself in this category. Where are you? Number one, be honest. Be honest. Here it comes. Group number one are those who don't really read the scriptures, so they never really see these words. They're sitting here right now going, I've been saved six years. What are these words again? Never. Like, this is totally new. Been saved four, five, six years. Maybe even ten. And they never hear it taught on or preached on, and they don't read the scriptures. Like, what? What's the big deal? And then there's a second group, and they're those who read the Scripture but ignore dealing with the words when those come up. Just, eh, oh, I hear how they and they and they define it. I don't like it. Just not dealing with it. Don't want to hear about it. Please, oh, I don't want to hear about it. Drives me crazy. Stop. Can I leave now? I wonder if I leave if they'll just think I'm going to the bathroom. I don't like, ah. Hands over the ears. Third group. Those who formulate their own meaning to the words. Oh, they read the Bible, they see the words, and I don't like that. I'll make my own meaning up. And the one I aspire to be in, I'm not telling you I'm all the way there, I aspire to be one of those who allow the whole of Scripture to define the words. We're not preaching on predestination this morning, but if you want to write a definition down. Say, what in the world is predestination? Predestination means that God has predetermined a destination. Isn't that pretty good there? That's like, wow, that's deep. It actually is deep, but it's really simple in the the word. It's a very descriptive word. Again, predestination means that God has predetermined, by the way, that comes with all the authority and the guarantee that it's going to happen. Probably we'll be preaching on that next week. Predestination. Again, this one I think should not be the one that causes the biggest rub to us. It's God has predetermined a destination of Christ-likeness in those who are the foreknown. So get it? God predetermined it's going to happen. A destination. What is the destination? These people will become like Christ. You say in this life, you never make it there all the way in this life, but we're going to be glorified. That's what it's talking about there at the end. We make it. We get glorified. We become like Christ because God has already predetermined. We reach that destination of Christ's likeness in those who are the foreknown. If I could wrap that note up, I would say this. Predestination deals with the what. That's the what. What's going to happen? They're going to have this happen in their life because God's already predetermined it. Guys, settle down. The predestination is just you're going to be like Christ if you're a Christian. But the other is the more difficult. Foreknowledge deals with who? 
Who? Who are the ones that are going to be predestined? Predestinations, what's going to happen? Foreknowledge deals more with who's this going to happen to? So what is this foreknowledge? Foreknowledge. I cannot go into this too much. This would literally be its own message. If you want to write it down, we'll have a verse. To know here means to forelove them in advance. To forelove them in advance. I think we have Genesis chapter 4. Look at verse number 1. Now Adam, this is when it was only Adam and Eve. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. This is not Adam, it's not Adam saying, hey, I know you. Yeah, you should. We're the only humans on the whole planet. You should know me. No, this is Adam knows Eve. Adam experiences Eve. Adam sets his love and affection on her. Adam knew her intimately. What the passages here, and even in the New Testament, are saying, it's like how God knew the nation of Israel there in the wilderness means God was watching them. God had chosen them. God was providing for them. He was protecting them. I know them. It doesn't mean God doesn't know the rest of the nations of the world. I know you, Israel. Adam knew Eve. God... For new certain people. For you could use this word, if you want to even write it under a small print under the other blank. To know here, we could say, means to foreordain in advance. If you would follow me, Ephesians. This, keep a spot here, it'll be the main text. But would you go to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians 1. Check my time. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse number three. Be great to follow along on these this morning, if, if at all possible. Verse number three. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. I cannot re-preach that message, but boy, we made a big deal how we're all born in Adam, but now he's blessed us in Christ. So if you say, I'm in Adam. I was born one of Adam's descendants. Could I tell you this morning, you need to become one of Christ's children. You need to be put in Christ's family. How's that happen? By faith. Be listening. Be listening. So God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Those are the best kinds. You say, I want a million dollars. A million dollars cannot touch spiritual blessing as in the heavenly places. Verse 4. Even as he chose us, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before the world was here, before any creation, he chose us. We're not even made. Adam's surely not made. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we, oh here comes kind of the predestination thing. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Two more verses. In love he predestined us for adoption. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose. I propose to you the purpose is the biggest thing. It's the underlying thing, this purpose of God, of His will. Now watch verse 6. It gives us a real view of what God's ultimate purpose is. To the praise of His glorious grace. It's really all about God's glorious grace being praised. And to do that, God sets up this purpose. And Jesus Christ is going to be the firstborn among many brothers. And we'll all be praising God for His glorious grace. That's what's coming. That's the key. That's what's the goal with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. If you want to write this down. Three differing views. By the way, each one of these has sub-levels. We can't go into all that. Three very kind of different. Hopefully you hear the difference. There are at least three different views 
on election, again, that's the word Paul will use in Romans 9, foreknowledge. I'm going to kind of equate election foreknowledge today. Here's number one, a denial of election. Just straight up deny it. Hey, what's your view on election? Don't believe in it. What's your view on the foreknowledge of God? Predestinated? Don't believe in it. Here's how that version, here's how that theology goes. Watch. God graciously offers salvation, but ultimately man chooses. Did you catch it? You say, preacher, you just said my view. Here it is again. God graciously offers. Here's salvation. Here it is to you. And in man, almost like smorgasbord, cafeteria, mm, I don't want that. Oh, I want earthly fame, earthly power. I'll take double dose. Give me double earthly fame. Give me good health. And I want, I, want, I want like a triple load of good health. Oh, what about, uh, eh. And that's how that version goes. Second one. This is different. This is election based on foreknowledge. This is election based on foreknowledge. I think Boyce is the one who helps us out here. I'll quote him in a moment. Watch this. This, number two, is a position of compromise that actually acknowledges election. Oh, yes, election is real. That first category, those people, they need to get up with the Bible. This one here is a a position of compromise. It acknowledges election, watch this, but it believes God elects some to salvation on the basis of having prior knowledge that they are going to choose him. And that just describes some in the building. Like, yeah, that's me right there. Yes, that is foreknowledge. God knows who's going to choose him, and so he chooses them. Victor, if you don't mind, would you sit on the front row today? Thank you. I guess I told him, didn't I? And you're like, what? You're like, Victor sits on the front row every week. Yeah, but I want to feel like a big shot, you know, a big authoritative pastor. Yo, Victor, if you don't mind, sit on the front row. That's stupid. That's that version, guys. Hey, God, because he's omniscient, knows everything, he knows who's going to choose him, and so I choose you. How does that strike you? I'll tell you how I hear that. That's a very weak, little, small, reactionary God who has to play off of what powerful man's going to do. Powerful man accepts me. Powerful man rejects me. So I choose you. Would you look down at verse 11? It'll be on the screen in a little bit. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to, watch this line, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We're talking about a God that doesn't react to man. We're talking about a God so powerful, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Based on that verse, that's why last week I could stand and say everything's right on schedule even if I don't understand that. Everything's on schedule. In other words, when God wants something... He makes it happen. You say, Jeff, there's a third type. Yes, write this down. Election pure and simple. Election pure and simple. I am going to borrow from Boyston the following. Very quick quote. It's lengthy, but I'm going to read it quickly. Boyce writes, this election pure and simple, what this does is this quote teaches, hear it, we are too hopelessly lost in sin ever to partake of God's great spiritual blessings on our own. 
We're just too hopelessly lost in sin. Instead, God in his mercy chose us and then made his choice effectual. He chose us and then he made it effectual. First, watch, he does two things. First, Boyce says, God made our salvation possible by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die for our sin. He made it possible. Then, number two, he made us capable of responding to him by sending the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth and the glory of the gospel. Thus, all the blessings we enjoy must be traced back to this sovereign, electing purpose of God toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, I could tell you this, guys. If God doesn't do both of those things, we have no shot. You say, what were both those things? He sent his son to die on the cross for us, making salvation possible. But still, even if he does that, but he doesn't send the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to receive, it and believe the gospel will never be able to access salvation through Christ he had to do both parts of that God initiated both flip if you would John chapter 6 John chapter 6 John chapter 6 let me give you the quick scene you ready you heard this before here's the quick scene Jesus just fed 5,000 people And then he leaves. And they find him the next day. They hear that he's over on the other side of the lake. So they get up and they go around to the other side of the lake. And then Jesus, instead of saying, hey, guys, thanks. I'm glad you came around. He rebukes them and says, you know why you guys are following me? Because you want some food. And he gets ready and he starts telling them what you really need is me and my message. You need me. And then they say, well, why don't you do something really big so that we'll know you're the one? Hey, wait a minute. He fed 5,000 of you yesterday with just a few loaves and fishes. That's a miracle. Yeah, but now Moses, he fed the children of Israel in the wilderness with the manna for 40 years. Why don't you do something on that scale and then we'll believe you. Watch this. Jesus says, I am the bread. Moses didn't feed you. My father fed you in the wilderness with the bread from heaven. I am the bread of heaven. Watch this. If you'll come to me, if you will come to me, you will not hunger spiritually, you will not thirst spiritually. Here's what I found. I got saved in 1979, nine years old. I have never wanted to study Mormonism to see if they really have it. I've never wanted to study, you know, um, um, uh, the Koran to see, well, maybe they're really onto it. I am perfectly satisfied in Jesus Christ since nine years old. Now, I do need to know some things about these other belief systems so I can converse with them, but they don't have it, Okay. He says, if you'll come to me, but watch what he says in verse 44. Having just told them you need to come to me, but verse 44, no one can come to me. That's Bible. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In case we missed it, he says it again down in verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Guys, I want to say, Judas heard everything the other disciples heard. He saw everything they saw. And Judas is in hell today. Jesus knew this all along. So verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You have to come to me. Listen carefully. No one, no one will go to heaven unless they come to the Lord Jesus Christ, but no one will go to the Lord Jesus Christ unless they're drawn by the Father. It's the only way. See how they're connected. You have a quote from MacArthur, if you would write this down. Very true. He says, although human faith, right, that's coming to the Lord, 
calling out on him. Although human faith is imperative. Boy, if I could emphasize that. And I, by the way, I'm going to emphasize that. It is imperative. You must call out on Christ. You must put your faith and trust in Christ. It is imperative for salvation. But he says rightly, although human faith is imperative for salvation, God's gracious initiation of salvation is even more imperative. Yes, we have to put our faith and trust in Christ. You must do that. I did it when I was nine. When did you do that? When did you do that? I said, I don't know that I've ever put my faith and trust in Jesus. And if here, here it is. I've pretty much always been a Christian. There was a time you had to put your faith and trust in Christ. If you've never done that, you were not on your way to heaven as of right now. You have to trust Christ. But even more imperative than that is God's gracious initiation of salvation. He continues, he says, God's choice not only precedes man's choice. God's choice makes man's choice possible. And I'm going to complete that. You say, Jeff, you sound like you're talking in a circle. And that guy you're quoting sounds like he's talking in a circle. Watch. He says, and yet, no person. So, God's gracious initiation, his choice of us, enables us to choose him. It won't happen the other way around. But then he says, no person is saved apart from, watch this word choice, conscious and willful acceptance of Christ. I'm going to read that again. No person is saved apart from conscious and willful acceptance of Christ. It's not like one night in my sleep, I must have put faith and trust in Jesus because I woke up kind of thinking I'm a Christian now. That'll never happen. It's conscious, willful, placing your trust in Jesus, accepting. That's why I said a few weeks ago, there will be no Christians surprised that they made it to heaven. I got in? Oh, no, no. They believe. They expect to get there. Many think they're on the way to heaven and they're going to be surprised that they wind up in hell. Many fit that category, but no Christians are going to be surprised. Why? Because there has to be a willful and conscious acceptance of Christ. Now, very quickly, I want you to see, and these are some you might want to take home and look at in your own time. If you want to write this note, most passages of Scripture, not all, but I find that most passages of Scripture that deal with God's election are closely connected to man's responsibility to believe. These are two separate things. And what I find, when I was going through with my red pen, I would see the sovereignty of God. I would see God doing what he did in eternity past and bringing it about in time and space. But I also see that when that happens, it's almost always connected to how mankind has to believe. It's like they're always like together. Almost always. John chapter 6, verse 37. I've been here 15 months, right? I'll bet you I've used this verse 15 times and I always emphasize the second part of the verse. Look at it, verse on screen. Again, I always emphasize the second part of the verse. The Bible says, all that the Father gives me, this is Jesus talking, all that the Father gives me shall come to me and I tell week after week, whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast you out. I want to emphasize that today. But this morning, notice the first part. All that the Father gives me will come. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. There's a blend. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number, get my way there. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, we read a while ago, I'm going to read down to verse 13. Listen how two things, God's sovereignty encounters man's responsibility to believe. Watch verse 11, 12, 13. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's kind of God. He works it out how he wants it. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ 
might be to the praise of his glory. Watch verse 13. In him also, you Ephesians, the idea, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see it? He does this, and you got it when you heard, and when you believed, that's when you received it, and not before. 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a major verse. Someone comes up to me and says, you're not one of those who believes this and that and that, are you? I would say, yeah, how do you explain this? Verse 13. But we ought... So he's talking about the tribulation period and a lot of people are going to follow the Antichrist and they're going to believe a lie and a deception. But Paul tells the Thessalonians, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved, watch this end, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Do you see that? God chose you through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It's like God always puts those together. And maybe even the most powerful outside of Romans 9, maybe Acts 13. Look at verse 47. Paul and Barnabas preach to the Jews. A few believe about Christ. They've been rejected. They're looking for the Messiah. They, Paul and Barnabas preach about Christ. Some put their faith in Christ. Most of them say, hey, can you come back next week? We need to hear this again. They come back next week and like the whole town there in Pisidian Antioch comes out. Whole town, everybody's like, hey, we want to hear this too. And this is what happens. The Jews who were ready to hear the message a second time look around and realize, who's all these Gentiles? They think they're getting in on our Messiah? And they got mad about it. And Paul says in verse 47, then we're going to turn to the Gentiles. We threw it to you first. You've rejected And then he turns to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So we're going to preach to these now. So you don't want to hear it anymore because you're afraid the Gentiles are going to get in on yours. So we're going to turn from you and we're going to offer it to them. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What happened? They believed. Which ones believed? The ones appointed to eternal life had to believe. I find that when Scripture launches us into the deep things of the sovereignty of God, it's like we just almost start getting out there of all that God does, and then the, here's what the Bible does. Hey, whoa, come on back now. Come on back. Why, what, what, Lord? Look at all that you're... Yeah, now, have you put your faith and trust in me? You have to believe. You have to believe. I find three times... Catch this. Three times in Scripture the Bible promises. And by the way, I'm going to answer your question. Do you think he's one of them? What about whosoever will? Do you think he doesn't believe whosoever will? Three times the Bible says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I believe that. Can I tell you this morning? Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. The idea of call on Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross. Whoever will call on him in faith will be saved. They will be saved. Every one of them who do that, all of them who do that, anyone who will call, they will be saved. But that's just it. No one will call unless God helps them. You say, Jeff, what about man's free will? Oh, Go back if you would, very quickly, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. I should have saved my marker, but I didn't. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. 
Ephesians 2, verse number 1. And you were dead. Let me back up. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. He's talking to the saved Ephesians. You, you guys, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. It's a reference to Satan. You were following him. That's your life. You were dead. The spirit, Satan, that now, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and, and, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That was us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the lo- great love with which he loved us, and it goes on and tells how he saved us. Look at verse 1 again. And you were on life support spiritually. You were really weak. You were just hanging on. You had just a flicker of spiritual life. That's not what the passage says. The passage says you were dead. Our note this morning is this. Man, that's you, is born in sin, born with a dead spirit. Notice, dead. Not life support, not really weak. Not just a flicker. Oh, you got just a spark of divinity in you. And if we could just fan that flame. What it means is our body, your body is, is alive right now. Your soul, you have a personality, you have, you have things, desires, all this you, that makes you distinctly you. You have a body that's alive, you have a soul that's awake and aware, but you're born with a dead spirit. That means there is no life. Dead things, I've learned, do not make decisions. Dead things do not make decisions. How many times has this pulpit right here heard the gospel accurately? You say, it's, it's not even a person, it's just an inanimate object. Our spirits are dead. I've learned this. No matter how perfectly someone presents the gospel, either in one-on-one or a small group, in a classroom, or in a sermon, or in a big auditorium at a crusade, no matter how perfectly they do it, it is not up to them to cause the person to be saved. At the end of the day, it is all riding on whether God gives that person spiritual life to receive. If you would go back to Romans chapter 3. Romans Chapter 3, verse 10, 11, and 12. We spent some time on this a few months ago. Said, so Jeff, what about man's free will? As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Look at verse 11, it's especially strong. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. It's not like, okay, that's the way toward God, and I came up just a little short. What this passage means is, if that's the way to God, it doesn't mean I jumped and didn't quite make it. It means I actually, I'm going to go this way. That's all of us. Jeff, what about our will? Verse 12 again, verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I've learned this. Man's will, if I could add this phrase, left to ourselves is never to go to God. Never to go to God. So that brings me to kind of the last passage of our day. John 1. Would you hold, find that after you write that note? John chapter 1. John 1. I'm going to sound like I'm going in a circle, but I want to I try to balance the two thoughts. John 1. He's talking about Jesus coming into the world. He's like a light. He is the light. He made this world and he comes into the world as the light. Verse 11. He came to his own. He came to creation. He came to mankind. He became a human being. God became a man. Verse 11. He came to his own and his own people, the Jews, 
So here God becomes a human, but not just any human, he becomes a Jew. You think they would be ready and receive their Messiah, but no, his own people did not receive him. Watch verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him. So the vast majority of the Jews, with the exceptions of people like Paul and Barnabas and a few other that are a remnant, most reject. But, here's a promise to you this morning, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, born again is what we mean, been born physically, has your spirit been born, your spirit was dead, your spirit needs brought to life, who were born not of blood. Hey, I'm a Christian because grandpa is a preacher and he's a Christian. It just naturally flows down to me. No, it doesn't. Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh. I will go to God. No, the will of the flesh is always to go away from God. Nor of the will of man. Well, I'm going to beat it into my grandchild until they believe in Jesus. I'm going to beat them and beat them and beat them. You ready to believe in Jesus? You cannot do it. The verse says it's of God. And on that passage, I've concluded, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus in faith, anyone will be saved. But there again, the only ones who will call, who will, anyone who will, they'll be saved. The only problem is anyone, the only ones who will believe and call are those given the ability to trust by God. And so as I come down the home stretch this morning, I want to throw a, a, a question to you, a, a familiar word. We're called Grace View, right? Grace View, Grace View. I know I've preached long. But I'm going to ask you if you would right now pray. Say, Lord, would you help me to get a biblical view? And if what's about to be presented is not, then help me to reject it. But if it is, Lord, help me to hear your voice in it. You ought to pray that. Grace means unmerited favor. Unmerited. It means gift. Literally free gift. Literally we didn't do a thing to earn it. Don't do anything to earn it. I think a lot of people use this phrase, grace, unmerited favor, but we don't know what it either. We don't, either we don't know what it means or we don't know about the ramifications of it. Here's why. One, we're very human and we're very American. And frankly, guys, we can't help it. I'm just telling I'm with you. We're human. We're American. That's our perspective. That's why we're going to struggle with what God has shown. The author I'm going to quote. This is a strong text. A strong quote. You're only going to have a small part of it. This text, this, the quote I'm going to give you is going to get stronger as it goes. Ask the Lord to speak. I believe J.I. Packer speaks truthfully. Here goes. You've got to listen. He says, ancient paganism... Thought of each God, little g. Here's how they thought. Each God is bound to his worshipers by bonds of self-interest. I need them. So little g's, ancient gods, bound to their different worshipers through bonds of self-interest because he depended on their service and gifts for his welfare. Now, they're not real gods, but that's the way they're serving. Our gods, we need our gods, and our gods need us. Packer's right. He says, modern paganism has at the back of its mind a similar feeling that God, capital G, the one true God, watch this, this is important. We kind of feel that God is somehow obliged to love. He's obliged to love and help us, little though we deserve it. Yes, we're sinners, we understand it. But God has to help us. God has to love us. 
And he says that was the feeling voiced by the French free thinker who died muttering. Hear this quote. A man died muttering this, God will forgive. That's his job. Let that sink in. God will forgive. It's his job. I mean, come on, it's his job. He's God. You know what that, that is man-centered. You have to do for us. We're the center here. We're the center of everything. It's all about us. You have to forgive. Is there anything in Scripture that says God just has to forgive? We continue. Packer says, but this feeling is not well-founded. The God of the Bible does not depend on his human creatures for his well-being. Nor now that we have sinned is he bound to show us favor. How dare we say, God, I've sinned, broken all your laws, and you owe it to me to love me and help me. You have to, it's your job. How dare we? See, that's where we get off. We don't understand our sinfulness. He continues, it's almost to your note. But doesn't God owe us something? Yes, he does. Packer says, we can only claim from him justice. Doesn't God have to give us justice? Yes. But he says, justice for us means certain condemnation. So putting that together, God does not owe it to anyone to stop justice taking its course. God does not owe it to Jeff Bartlett. Oh, I've got to stop justice from happening in Jeff Bartlett's life. No, he does not. And he's right when he writes the following. God is not obliged to pity and to pardon. If God pities and pardons, it's an act that's done, as we say, of his own free will. I told you, it's a strong quote. Nobody forces God saying, God, you have to be gracious to me. Then it's not grace, guys. That's not grace. He even goes so far as to say this. It does not depend on man's will or effort, but on God's mercy. It doesn't depend on man's will or effort. You're like, where in the world does he get such a cockamamie idea as that? Romans 9, 16. Paul says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's where he got an idea like that. And I told you this is a strong one. Here's the close. Grace is free. Don't get mad at me. I'm going to tell you, I agree with this. Grace is free in the sense of being self-originated and of proceeding from the one who was free not to be gracious. Only when it is seen that what decides each individual's destiny is whether or not God resolves to save him from his sins. And that is a decision which God need not make in any single case. Can one begin to grasp the biblical view of grace? Anything other than that is, but he has to because I'm an American or I'm their child or I go to church I got baptized. I give money. I even get on my knees. I I pray. That's not grace. John 1, 12 and 13 says, to those who receive, he gives the right, the privilege, the authority to become the sons of God, those who believe on his name. And when that's done, it's not of the will of the flesh. It's not the will of, of, of man, mom, dad, grandparents. It's of God. It's always of him. So I want to make something super clear. 
Salvation is not obtained apart from you receiving it from God by believing in the person of Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, Romans 8.28 does not apply to you. You will not go to heaven. But you say, Jeff, what if I'm not one of those elect foreknown people? Can I tell you something? Don't you worry about that. Put your faith in Jesus. Today. Put your faith in Jesus because I promise you this. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. He never says no. Your last two notes. Here it goes. Well, if that's true, well then, that means we don't need to tell anybody about Jesus. I hate that response. Hate it. Because it is so unbiblical. Tell Paul that who died basically killed himself going on missionary journeys, being beaten and stoned and shipwrecked for the cause of Christ. Tell Paul that. God's sovereignty does not make us abandon telling people about Jesus. You say, Jeff, so we should do this? They're going to go to hell if they don't put their faith in Christ. They will never put their faith in Christ if they don't hear about Jesus. Tell them. I'm going to propose to you that second part of that note. God's sovereignty guarantees some will be saved. Paul's ready to leave Corinth. Apparently, man, I'm tired. It's not just working here. And God says, whoa, 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 Paul, I have much people in this city. Acts chapter 18. There would have been no Corinthians, no first, second Corinthians. There would have been no Corinthian church had Paul had his way. It's just not taken. I'm ready to move on to the next town. And God's like, no, 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 no. I have much people. You're staying here. They're going to listen. They haven't responded yet. They're coming. Can I say this? That's why in the world I plead every week. I plead with you. Please. If you're not a Christian, this message today is for Christians, but if you're not a Christian, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's enough. God the Father says His death is enough to pay for all your sin, and He'll give you free salvation if you'll just put your faith and trust in Christ. He sent you here today for a reason. He let you be born in America. He let you be here today where you've heard the Bible. You've heard ten times now how Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. And He is God. God's working in your life. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Now close. I've said that three times now. Sorry. Let's be honest. This doctrine causes some people to accuse God and judge Him in their mind. It sure does. That was me. I still struggle with that. But I'll tell you where it's led a lot of people. And this is where it's led me. So Jeff, when you think about this, and wow, what Ephesians says, and Romans, and John 6, and John 1, and man, it's just doesn't that like make you just, you just want to tell God he can't do that, and how dare he, and boy, Romans 9 will touch on that. I'll tell you where it's ultimately led me to ask this question. Why me? God, why me? Why'd you let me be born in Charles and Louise's house? Why'd you let me be in the 21st century? Why'd you let me learn how to read? Why'd you let me have a Bible in my own language? So many people never had this. Why'd you let me have good pastors? Why'd you let me go to that Bible camp? God, why me? And so if anybody thinks, oh, the old frozen chosen who are arrogant, let me tell you something. Anybody who's arrogant on this doctrine missed the whole point. You didn't do anything. He did everything. He did everything! He did it all. It is not me. Why me? That's the question. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Christian, I'm going to ask you to do three things right where you sit. 
The altar is always open and the moment we'll be singing. Christian, I don't know about you, but when I think about this, three responses are definitely called for. Number one, I realize we have some movement right now. We've got people moving in to sing in a moment. But please, here's what I'm asking you to do. Here's what you should do. With your eyes closed, focus on God right now and tell God, God, thank you. Thank you, God, for saving me. Lord, why me? Why was I born in this place in this time? If you are a Christian, ask God, why me? I don't understand. But I love you. Thank you. I did nothing. Christian, secondly, I would ask you this. Do not judge God. Do not judge God. Do not accuse God in your mind. Romans 9, 14, Paul asks the question, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? He doesn't explain his answer. He just says, by no means, exclamation point. Don't say that. Don't say that. So if you're tempted to do that, which I've been many times, here's what you ought to do. God, I am small. I'm ignorant. I don't see everything. You're a lot different than me. You're God and I'm not. I'm just going to be quiet. And then I think the third response for a Christian is pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Are you partnering with God and His great purpose? Are you partnering with God? God uses people to evangelize. God does not use the angels to evangelize people. He uses people just like you. Christian, listen to me. God uses people. His sovereignty guarantees some will always be getting saved. And He uses people. Are you going to get in on it or not? Are you going to give? He uses shoebox ministry. He uses offerings to send missionaries. He uses you to talk to your neighbor and your family. Listen, let's put those two things together. Don't, let's not dare get mad at God if we haven't told anybody about Jesus. How dare we say, God, you don't love when we don't love enough to tell people about Jesus. What a hypocrite that would make me. Give thanks. Don't judge partner with God say God by your grace I'm going to pray I'm going to give I'm going to give you're doing a work and I want to be part of it and God if you want me to I'm going I'm going to the nations one of our members just a few weeks is going to Africa for a week to tell pastors about Jesus so Jeff is that all that you have for us by way of application I have one last thing the Bible says whosoever will call on the name of the Lord whosoever Jew or Gentile I know this for a fact, any person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus, anybody who, don't have to have a lot of faith, just a little faith, a little faith, enough to hear this message this morning, right where you're sitting and say, God, I'm a sinner, I'm in big trouble. And you sound like a fearful being. And God, I believe what you've said about hell. But Lord, more than that, I believe what you said about Jesus dying on the cross. I believe you're in this room, Lord. I believe you can hear my thoughts. God, I'm a sinner, but I don't want to go to hell. I want to, I want to worship you. I love you because of what you've done. Lord, will you save me? Listen. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's God's word. You don't even have to ask, will you save me? Here's what you do right now. God, you promised. You said Jesus is enough. I receive it today. I receive your salvation. Lord, I'll take it right now, right now, Sunday morning. I take it right now. 
and believe it. God can't lie. Father, Lord, I hope I haven't made a mess. You are so far above us. You are very fearful to me, but you're wonderful. Lord, I'm humbled by this doctrine. It's over our heads, Lord, but thank you for your work, your word. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Let him move. Lord, I'm going to go down front, and if someone needs to talk to me or just spend some time in prayer, or if they just want to sing a worship song to you, Lord, let us respond as you see fit. As you lead, let us be obedient. Would you please stand? If I can help you this morning, I'll be down front. In 